Hi, and welcome back to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Now, our next guest kind of blew me away. She made me stop thinking the way I was thinking just through a conversation we had about how we process trying to get other people to change. And it's funny, you know, I always want people to achieve their ambitions. I want them to fulfill their potential. I want them to be all the things they can be. But my next guest doesn't. She only wants that if you want that. And recently she launched a book and I'm currently reading it, but we discussed it along the way. And the book is called Live By Your Own Rules. The co-founder of Mind Valley, her name is Christina Mand Lakiani, and her insights are just incredible. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Cue the music and get stuck into one of the smartest people we've ever had on the show. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I feel like I've just done a podcast with you already just <laughs> for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> but we're, we're here at Mind Valley. And this is this is quite a thing, isn't it? Now, I'm I'm really glad that it's taking uh, taking you know taking off so much and so well because I think uh, what we do actually is what people need in the world. The world is so so miserable very often, mm. and you don't have to be. So I think that's what Mindvalley is about: is is giving joy back to people. Tell me about how this journey started for you. Where's the beginning of this journey? For me, for me, it's a little different. So Vishen, the founder of Mind Valley, the famous founder of Mind Valley, that's been his passion since, since he was a teenager. Uh, I had a completely different story and a different path. And I, I like to say that I ended up in Mind Valley by accident and <laughs> reluctantly, which is true. Uh, because I was born in Soviet Union. I was raised in Soviet Union. I was a teenager when it collapsed. So I have a very different kind of background. Uh, there were two things which were completely not present in Soviet Union. I didn't have any business as uh, a role model because business was punishable by law, entrepreneurship, and uh, personal growth wasn't a thing either. We are very like uh, pragmatic and scientific. So when I got married with Vishen and he was into that, that's when I discovered. And since I had left my life behind in Europe and moved to New York and I was totally unsettled and I had to rediscover myself, the best thing I could do is was help with Mind Valley. So I started helping Mind Valley from the very beginning, very reluctantly, but uh, over years. You know, sometimes we, we get to what we are supposed to do in life through resistance and not knowing. And sometimes even by accident. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, because a lot of people go through their life and they just, they just exist. Yeah. Okay. They just kind of, they don't even motor along, they plod along and they exist. And, they, they talk about better things and greater things. You know, I've just come back from Uzbekistan and I sat at a dinner where there's been <clears throat> 200 people and not a lot of people happy and smiling. Just a lot of very kind of serious people that are kind of co <coughs> coping with it and just like getting through life. Yeah. And that for me is fascinating because I don't get why people want to live with mediocrity. I think it's not like it's not like people consciously choose mediocrity. We also just don't understand the anatomy of life. Sorry for using such a geeky word, 
the thing is that when you, when it comes to your well-being, to happiness, to something like self-love, which I like to talk about, we always deprioritize it. We think that it is unimportant. I've been in business for 20 years, so I also get it. When you, when your business problems, for example, start becoming too overwhelming, for example, an economic crisis is looming, or your customers not paying what you want them to pay, or uh, your teenage kids are complicated, you somehow naturally think, okay, my well-being is un unimportant because I have a much bigger problem in life. And that's, that's a paradigm that we've been brought up with. We think that we have to solve these problems without realizing that it's usually when you take care of your well-being, when your problems start becoming smaller and sometimes even disappear. So your well-being is important. It's as important as the problems, but we deprioritize it because we don't see the connection. So I think an analogy I like to bring is uh, in summer we were in, uh, in Norway, northern Norway, uh, and we visited a husky farm in uh, Trosa. So in winter, and in northern Norway, winters are completely dark. In winter they have this husky... is in the Arctic Circle, isn't it? Yes, behind the Arctic Circle. So they have this race in the middle of winter on husky sleds. So the, the handler of, of a bunch of huskies goes from Tromsø to Kirkenes, which is on the border of Russia and back, and it takes a few weeks. And every day veterinarians come and, and check the huskies. And if the husky is not in the good shape, they are taking the huskies off the race. And you can't proceed no matter what you think. And the handlers very often say, but no, I can push. Because you know, when you're in the race, you think I can push. It's not a big deal. I'll survive. But here's have proof that you won't. You won't. You can't compromise that. And we don't understand that as obsolete. And I think that's, that's the source of why we are so unhappy. Because we deprioritize. We routinely deprioritize happiness, well-being, self-love. We think it's unimportant. We don't understand what it is. And like, you don't need research to know that success doesn't bring happiness. You, do you sometimes find that it takes people to get to a a certain, a real kind of like dark place in their life before they realize that things have to change. It might, and it's usually, uh, we're kind of comfortable uh, growing through pain, and it very often happens like that, but you see, there are no absolutes in life. Yes, there are a lot of people who have full, a painful, dark moment, like being in the bottom has been the turning point, and they said, okay, never again, I'll, I'm going to change my life. But these are so, a few examples. What doesn't kill you doesn't necessarily make you stronger. It may kill you later, it may make you less of you, it may make you, you know, be more guarded, build more walls, be a little bit more thick-skinned. So it's not a guarantee. Transformation does come through pain, but pain alone is not enough. In my opinion, transformation is two things. It's, well, it's actually three things. It's knowledge, definitely your framework in which you operate. It's experience, because knowledge without experience is just cognitive. You need it in your, like, cellular level, but it's also a support system. You also need people to support you in this process. Because transformation is uncomfortable. It doesn't have to be painful, it's uncomfortable. Uh, but uh, the fact that we equate transformation to pain is also the paradigm in which we grow, uh, in which we live. Society has, hasn't uh, questioned all those paradigms very much. We, we, we live in a society that needs uh, hustling, success, chasing. We think that the only way to reach success is through pain, through punishment, we run away. We don't, uh, we, we don't understand a different way of living where you actually, rather than working on your weaknesses or doing things that you don't like to become totally successful, where you actually focus on what you're good at, what you enjoy. Have we ever, do we, we don't see examples of people who thrive because they do what they love and only what they love. Mm. Have you ever had a point in your life where you'd said to yourself, I can't take it anymore? Yes, yes. 
I, so coming back to my own story, I have been perfectionist all my life. I'm the only child of my, my parents. I know hard work. I, when you, I graduated from school, I got a medal from the president of the country for being the best student. Really? I get it. I get it. I lived by the book because, you know, I'm ambitious and everything. And at the age of 40, I had a very perfectly Instagrammable life. Business, traveling, children. I have a boy and a girl. Statistically, you know, proper combination. Perfect, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Perfectionist. And, um, and at, the, at the age of 40, I suddenly felt that it wasn't making me happy. And I, I, I felt like something was missing. And that was half the problem. The, the fact that you've achieved all of that, you thought you need to achieve to feel happy. And you don't feel happy. That's half the problem. The real problem was that I was shaming myself for not being happy. I was like, how dare you? How dare you to feel miserable? What's wrong with you? And that, that was for me the turning point. Because I, I, I realized I can't, I just can't uh, shame myself out of being me. I can't pretend something. I was missing myself, literally. I remember I came to the office one day and my, uh, after some traveling and my colleague and a friend said, Christina, I missed you. And I said, I missed me too. Without even like stopping, and then suddenly I was like, "What did I just say?" I said, "I miss me too." And you said it with meaning. I said it with meaning, but it was on autopilot. And then it really—it was like I stopped in my tracks and said, "Am I missing?" Yes, my body was there, living perfectly Instagrammable life. For some people, I was an inspiration, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there. The me. I understand what you mean. Tell me about. How, what were your parents like then? Were your parents, did they push you hard? Did you, did you study at university? What your dad wanted you to study? What was that like for you growing up? I, uh, part, of, uh, part of growing up in Soviet Union is that we were a very egalitarian society. So as a girl, I never had, I realized the meaning of feminism later when I actually ex was exposed to the world. So as a girl, I was quite self, uh, I, I could take decisions for myself. Uh, I studied politics because uh, in that environment, I thought uh, international politics, I thought that was the only way for me to see the world if I become a diplomat and I'll get to travel. But did you choose that? Or did you I chose it. Okay. Because I wanted to travel. <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, no, my parents, uh, I have very good relationships with them. And I think, uh, I think they are the reason why I actually managed to survive the changes. Uh, we, we're all exposed to things in our life. And the same things, the same events can have a completely different effect on us. So for a lot of people, the fall of Soviet Union was a collapse of everything. Their life changed. Whatever my parents gave to me, and I've never given a lot of analysis to that, uh, it allowed me to adapt. And adaptation is what you need in life. You, you can't control circumstances, but you control your reaction to circumstances. So I forgot that I'm going on a rant and I'm forgetting your question. No, no it's about what your parents were like when you were growing up. They were very supportive. They were very supportive. But, and, and that's what I want to say. We very often, we very often say that society wants me to do that. Society wants me to be successful. My parents want me to be successful. My parents are the ones who want me to pick a job which will pay bills. That's what we say. But the uncomfortable idea is that it's us who adopt those goals, who subscribe to that. So a lot of us get to the point in life where we have to choose between happiness and success. Uh, should I do art or should I go and study law? Should I stay in this good job which pays, which is steady, or should I go into business and take the risk? Should I start a family like I'm supposed to 
I should, should I ignore everybody's expectations? And when we are faced with that choice, my, uh, my guess is that most of us subconsciously choose happiness, or sorry, success over happiness, not because we don't prioritize happiness, but because we think that success is a certain thing. We understand a path to success, work hard, do certain things, give me, give me a recipe. I know how to put more work. If you give me a recipe, if you give me one, two, three, I know how to work hard. What I don't know is how to gamble. And happiness is very often we think it's a gamble because I do not know. If I do what I love to do rather than uh, earn a good salary, am I going to be happy? One thing I know for sure that earning money might be difficult. So we go for things which we think are certain and we think success is certain. And happiness is a gamble. It's interesting, really interesting. As you're talking, I'm thinking about my eldest daughter. All right, she's 23 years old. She's finished university this uh, last year. Uh, she I said, study what you want to study. Yeah. Study what makes you happy. So well, she studied art. And so she finishes university. She's now working in graphic design in a, in a creative agency. Yeah. And she's like, have I just wasted four years of university where I could have been at work? <laughs> and I'm like, well, tell me about this job. Do you love, do you love the job? Because yeah, I've just worked on this project. We've just done this. We've just done that. And she's like, animated when she speaks about it. I'm like, yeah. isn't that the wealth? And she said, what do you mean? She goes, Dad, you know, I'm 23 years old, you know, I should be earning more money than this. And, you know, I should, I should, be, I should be getting, you know, you bought me a house. Why did you have to buy me a house? I should buy my own house, you know, yeah. and all these kind of things. And I'm like, just, as you can go to work every day and just yeah. be happy with what you're doing. Wait, but we, you know, our society doesn't have this new scenario for us yet. Our children are much luckier. They get to do the things that they love. We didn't have that uh, privilege, but we also haven't given our kids the the rules about living like this because we haven't explored that field. See, I, see, I look at Mind Valley and I think it's a way for people to find solutions to challenges they face and then yeah. practical tools to help them. And you think about that. Invariably, people that, and this is my guess, would come to and be part of Mind Valley yeah. have identified a problem. They're like, I need to fix that problem and this is going to help me fix that problem. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But should Mind Valley not be teaching the kids? Uh, yes. Yes. And that's a very big philosophical pro uh, question. And I, and I have so many thoughts as, as response to what you just said. Is there agreement and disagreement? First of all, fixing is a very cool word. Maybe we'll get back to that. Maybe not. Maybe in private conversation, whatever. But when it comes to kids, you know, uh, children do go to academic education and academic education is important. We as a society should understand that academic education has a completely different goal. And that's fine. And I have no problems with that. My kids go to school. I actually trust the school. But also see the limitations. Whatever school is teaching. Of course, parents and society should be teaching children the value of life and how to live. Uh, but all parents are also messed up. So what happens is that uh, we pass on those, uh, those bizarre ideas and beliefs to our children and they pass them on to their children. We mix the trauma into all of that. And uh, yeah, there are not many people who know how to live properly and we don't talk about that as society. But the problem with what we teach is that it is value-based and societies have very hard times uh, agreeing on values. Academic education is very pragmatic. It's based in science and you can say, okay, if that's science, then we can teach it. When it comes to, for example, teaching children a good relationship with money, it's necessary. You don't need, you don't need a corporate job to earn good money. You can earn money doing things that you love, but our relationship with money is messed up. 
And we have so much dogma around that. Yet a lot of societies wouldn't agree to teach that to the children because there would be someone who says money is unimportant because we don't even understand that on the we don't approach this topic on the same grounds. So because what a lot of the things that we teach are value-based, it's really hard to go mainstream in the sense that there will be always people who will say, this is unimportant. I talk about happiness and self-love. People will say, we don't need more self-love. Look at, look at uh, social media. People are so exhibitionist. What we need is more humility. What I'm saying is that self-love is necessary because what you see on social media is not the sign of too much self-love. It's the sign of absence of self-love. People can't give it to themselves, so they crave it from the outside world. But this is value-based, and as a society, we haven't agreed on these things, and that's why it's so hard to go mainstream sometimes. Wow. That's kind of a bit of a mic drop moment there. I think, I think about, you're absolutely right, that, that everything is passed down, and the really, I, I'm from the finance world. Yeah. I, I can't understand for the life of me why every kid isn't learning about credit cards, interest rates, inflation, savings, the stock markets property portfolios i just don't get why that's not taught in schools or at sixth form or even you can't even go to university to study it yeah. you know that yeah, yeah you can't go and study that and do a three-year degree yeah in money management and investing there's there's different types of stuff yeah. you can do economics <clears throat> you can do trade finance project finance you can do working in treasury and stuff like that but everybody should learn how to manage their money and they don't yeah i agree it was as frightening. It is. I remember when I, go, uh, I, I gave my mom a book by Harvecker. He's brilliant in that. T. Harvecker. Yeah, she read it when she was like 50 and she, she put it down and she said, Christina, why didn't I have this book earlier when I was younger? We, and that's not, that's not anything contradictory or controversial. You know, you can, you can teach people, but, but we as a society, we need to agree. You know, I lived for uh, 16 years, I lived in Malaysia. And it's a fairly strict traditional society. And I remember uh, there was a day when the Malaysian government passed the law that uh, Muslims cannot do yoga classes because of the meditation, uh, meditation part of yoga. Yeah. We really value-based subjects are hard because we don't agree on certain things. I will not even touch religion because if you, t if you try to teach spirituality, we'll have huge arguments about what's God, what's the higher power, right? But even things like happiness or well-being, we, we, we live in the world which glorifies martyrdom. You have to put everything on the altar and success. Do you, if you want to achieve success without sacrificing your health, your family, your sanity, and your well-being, you don't see a lot of examples because we are fascinated, we are enamored by, by struggle. And, and we don't give children that example. Uh, I'll, I'll give you, uh, if you don't mind, I'll tell my own story. Please, yeah. So when I was four years old, you know, Soviet Union was pretty good on Olympic uh, champions. Yeah. So when I was four years old, how they did, they had this mincing machine called Olympic Reserves. They actually went into kindergartens and they picked up little children and they went, put them into this Olympic Reserves and they trained Olympians there. Like that was the goal. From kindergarten. So when I was four years old, they picked me up for gymnastics. Wow. And this is my earliest memory because I remember my first training, they put me in the split by force. I was crying. It was physically painful. It's my first memory because it was the most traumatizing memory probably of my life. And after a few trainings, I told them, oh, please don't, don't ever bring me back there again. Uh, and sure enough, next year they picked me up for figure skating. But my mom said, no, until this day, I have really hard relationships with sports. I only do sport because I understand consciously that I need it for my fitness. But I have, I struggle, although I do, 
naturally have a physique for doing sports. I'm pretty good at that, but I struggle. It's a mental struggle for me. And the way we see society right now, you would say, I just failed because I didn't have what it took to be a um, success, to be an Olympian. Probably I didn't. I was a waste material in that system. And that system does create Olympians. It does create champions, but it creates through breaking a whole lot of people and creating a lot of waste material that we never talk about. Yeah. We only talk about the champions. Yeah. And we think that waste material is waste. I'm not waste. I still do sports. I'm pretty good, actually. I'm not Olympian. I'm good at other things. Wow. But we, we have turned it this way. There is another system, not based in punishment. It's based in encouragement. You know, when the child learns to walk, when the child gets up and falls, the parent, loving parent wouldn't say, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Your peers in that age are already climbing the trees. No, we don't do it like no. this. So I think we, I, I create the society where we actually start seeing a different way of achieving success through encouragement, because that system works as well. It does work and it doesn't create waste material because it doesn't break people. I don't think about it like that. It's a really good way of describing it. You know, we always talk about how do you get people to do things? It's the carrot or the stick, you know? Do you, can you encourage with the carrot or do you have to whack them with the stick? You know? uh, can you can you actually help them find what they love? But you know why this punishment system exists? I believe that, but that's my theory. I haven't done research on that. I think it's because we think that people are by nature lazy and bad. And that's why we think if I, do, if I don't force you, you're going to just stay in bed and do nothing. You will be lazy, you will be complacent. And that's a huge misunderstanding. My, my belief in humanity is that, yes, maybe sometimes you need a rest, but most of us, you, you remember we're talking about me liking my farm. I loved my farm because it charges my batteries. But if I stay there- Just give me some concept, some <laughs> context, sorry. So just explain the farms. You have a farm in- a hobby farmer, yes. I have a farm on an island really far away from society. Four hours away from Tallinn in Estonia, yes. like the middle of nowhere, you have this farm. Yeah, go on. I have 18 sheep there. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of forests and some beach. It's, it's a beautiful place. I love going there because it charges my batteries. But if I stay there long, I will get restless. I need to get back because that's our ne human nature. People are not lazy. We have built, we've created all of that out of being... We, we wanted to improve, you know, we wanted to do things. So uh, my, my paradigm is that encouragement actually also brings you to, uh, to success, but you have to find the things that you really enjoy. A very simple analogy would be when you do a, an essay in school and the teacher takes out the red marker and starts pointing out, this is wrong, this is bad, this is a red marker technique. You get back your, your essay and you look at all the bad things that you need to improve and not do the next time. Yeah. The green marker technique is when the teacher reads your essay and says, this is brilliant. Oh my God, I love this turn. This is a green marker technique. You'd get back your work and you're like, okay, that's where I should put more effort. Imagine if from very early age, you were doing the things that you're really good at and that you truly love, rather than working on your mistakes, working on the things that you hate, putting more effort into things where you're bad at. We've never tried. We think it doesn't work because we believe that people are, uh, are lazy. You're making me question everything I think about right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't want to make you uncomfortable. But it's, no, it's, it's, it's making me question how I think about certain things. And that's really important because if, when, you, when you do that, you open people's minds, don't you? 
Okay, let's take an interlude and go into the book. Tell us about this book that you've written, the, the journey of writing a book. Oh, that you deserve a medal for, for just even <laughs> writing a book in the first place. So you wrote this book, Becoming Flawsome. Yes. And I, I wrote a book, it took me 18 months. And I said to you, how long did it take you to write a book? And you said, it took me a long time, it took me six months. <laughs> well, you see, I love writing. I love writing and finally I got to do something that I love. I think when you do what you love, you thrive. And I actually believe I'm much better writer than speaker. Okay. Because I'm a writer. I, it's, that's, that's my way of expression. It's art, it's creation. I'm an artist also in addition to a lot of other things. But art is, you know, we are so afraid about AI, but that's, that's nothing to be afraid of because if you do what you love, genius strikes. And genius strikes when you are in your zone. Not when you're pushing yourself. We as a society, we live in a hamster's wheel. Creation doesn't happen in a hamster's wheel. Hamster's wheel is good for ex execution, for management. That's good. But if you want to create, if you want to shoot for the moon, you have to, you have to do, you have to wait for genius to strike. And for that, you have to do things that you love. So I asked you to tell me about your book, which you refused to do, so... <laughs> yes, I'm obstinate. If you read... Uh, so if you read my uh, intro, you will get it. <laughs> so just, to, just for the context, I wrote this book to be self-published. So uh, I, I told you that your, your audience doesn't know, but I spent a lot of time um, spreading my value to Russian-speaking market. So I, I was doing a lot of work in Russian language, and then... Um, uh, and then I, I just felt that I need to I, I need to speak to an English audience. I felt that you know, like in the song, if you make it here, you'll make it anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I felt so when I was writing a book, I sat down to write the book. Of course, I had all the context of Russian market. I was thinking of writing in Russian, and I even wrote the first page in Russian because I had the publishers there and everything. In the, in English world, I I didn't know anything. I mean, I was in a different universe. And then when I sat down somewhere deep inside, I felt no, I want to I want to go big. Because Russian is a big market, but if I do it in English, I'll speak to the world. And, uh, but I didn't have any context with publishers, so I thought I'll just self-publish. Because this book is about being you, it's about being authentic. And we live in the world where there are rules for everything. You want to succeed in anything, there are rules for that, including the books. I do interviews. I know that every, every author that I introduce has to be introduced as the best-selling author. Because if you're not the best-selling author, you know what. So I sat down to write a book about being authentic, about being me. And of course, I said, I'm, I'm going to self-publish because I want to make my own decisions while I write the book. And when it was done, uh, the publisher came along and that was the journey. The first meeting with the publisher, she, she told me, uh, could you consider rewriting your uh, intro? It's uh, very uh, original. <laughs> <laughs> and the convention is that you should uh, you should uh, prep the reader. You should explain why they should read the book and what they're getting and what you're going through. And my, my favorite writers are Jane Austen, Dostoevsky. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> she said, why? I said, because a book is a journey. Imagine if you pick up Lord of the Rings and they tell you that the fellowship is going to fall apart in chapters. I don't remember which one. My book is a journey. I can't. So my introduction starts with, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I do care about your journey. But it's a journey to being you. And how do you balance the between, you know, where do you strike the balance between being absolutely truly quirky you and what the society expects of you to reach success? It's a balance because if I'm completely obstinately myself, people won't read my book. The book becomes a book when it finds the reader. If I'm obstinately myself, 
It might become just a journal, just a diary. But if I follow all the rules that society puts on me to reach success, I feel I, sometimes I felt like I was selling the soul to the devil. Yeah. Extremes, they're just not good. You have to find the balance. And that's what my book is about. So tell me, tell me, who would be the typical reader of this book? Anyone can read this book. I was writing it uh, thinking of, you know, is it going to be relevant 100 years from now? And of course I have examples from contemporary life, but I wanted it for, for people because I think we all reach that point at some sometimes in our life. We do all the right things. We try so hard to do the right things, to be good boys, good girls, perfectionists, uh, be successful, uh, please people in our life, not maybe everyone, but at least someone that you love. We want to do things for our family. And we try so hard that at some point we realize, like myself, that I've lost myself. So when you when you, when you, when you said I lost myself, it's quite interesting. You know, yeah. A lot of people in relationships, and, and I'll take my relationship. My wife sometimes wants me to be somebody I don't want to be. Yeah. And I, I love my wife very much, yeah. but she wants me to be somebody I don't want to be. And I'll give you a simple example that just happened in the last 24 hours. I went to celebrate her father's 70th birthday. Yeah. And she said to me, um, can you please make sure you've got a breakfast you have to go to? Can you wear a suit for the breakfast? And can you wear a suit for the for the dinner? I'm like, yeah, no problem at all. And can you wear your brown shoes for the for the, for the the breakfast and your black shoes for the dinner? And I was like, um, I don't like my brown shoes. They're really uncomfortable. Um, so I won't wear my brown shoes. I wear my black shoes. No, 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 no. All right, I want you to wear the brown shoes. And I'm 52 years old. Yeah. I don't need to be told. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm wise enough to. Hopefully, I dress up, uh, okay enough. Oh yeah, you. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and so it's like when, when you're. I mean, this is a very material thing. But when you're pushed down a certain path, you, the the immediate response to that is resistance. True. True. Like yeah. immediate. You, you call it obstinance. In sometimes maybe that is. But for me, it's just like you know. I'll give you another example. I've told my wife from the very beginning, never buy me clothes. Yeah. Yeah, never. Yeah. Don't buy me clothes, don't most, don't, okay. If you want to come shopping with me, that's fine, but never buy me clothes. Yeah. And every birthday, even Valentine's <laughs> two weeks ago, a shirt and a belt, and, and a shirt I would never wear. Yeah. And I'm like, why are you doing this? Because yeah, but I think you look nice. It's a subtle ways to try to change. Yeah. But you know, there are so many ways to approach that. Uh, so one of them is the boundaries and values. How do you build boundaries? Because if your boundaries are too strict, you're also a very hard person. So if there is, and I have to make a disclaimer, I'm not a good person to give advice in relationships because I'm divorced. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> but that aside. I'm on my second and <laughs> But that aside. Um, there, there, there is a question of boundaries and values. What, what is a non-negotiable for you? That's what, what I was talking about. Where is my non-negotiable? Uh, because there are certain things that I agree to sacrifice for the relationship and other things which actually contradict my values. I'll bring my own example. When I came off the stage yesterday, and honestly, this was the biggest audience for me so far. So it was challenging. And somebody told me, oh, my God, I'd love you to go through some public speaking training. And I said, I've gone through quite a lot. What you don't understand is that I refuse to follow the rules. And there is a reason. There are certain things that I will follow because I understand this breaks the the, this breaks the flow. I shouldn't be doing that, like uh, things like that. But there are also things which I know is me. And I get so much garbage for my accent, for example. You have to stop for a minute. Okay. I, and the audience yeah. can hear it. Where's Sophia? This is, this is you on me. You're talking, it's like I'm talking to myself. Thank you. These things, I refuse. I refuse to compromise on me being me. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know what? But the thing is that... 
It's so hard sometimes when you're told that you need to strike your balance. We like recipes because it's easier, you understand. But when you're told that, no, you have to feel and you have to take decisions every single step of the way. It's like a dance. That's why I'm saying you can't, I can't give you an answer which will work now because I've been in personal growth for 20 years. One thing I know for sure, what works for me today will not work for me five years from now and might have not been relevant to five years ago. So there are no recipes in life. The only recipe I can tell is get to understand yourself. Get to listen to yourself. Can you learn to love yourself unconditionally? Give yourself that support because it's your love for yourself. I get criticism for a lot of things. But when I know that this is against my values, I'm going to, you'll turn, I'll turn in, into line and people go like, okay, I respect your decision. Because you have to, you have to be your own, your best support. It's like a, one of the, the key skills that, 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 that some great people have is self-awareness. Yeah. And a lot of people don't have self-awareness. Coming back to fixing, because we are told the society works on that marketing and service sales work on that too. Yeah. Marketing is built on hitting the pain. And to hit the pain, you're being told you're broken. You have to fix it. You're broken. You have to fix it. And I know how to fix it. Don't worry. It's not your fault that you're broken. But that paradigm that you have to fix something is, is based in the idea that if you, pro if, if you need to be fixed, that means that you're broken. My, my theory is that you're not broken. You may be wounded. You need healing. And healing implies that you're human. And human is imperfect, but beautiful. Wow. That's what that's I'm about. Really, but that's really important. Because you've taken something from being, in essence, very black and white. Yeah. And let us understood the grey bits in the middle, just with that one sentence. And I think that's what we miss. And you're schooling me right now. I just want you oh, to know sorry. that. Another in a grey way, in a great way. Because I, I don't think like that. It's like I've seen people that have worked with me over the years and it's when they've got to a point where they're really struggling, that's when they'll ask for help. Yeah. Until they get to that point, they don't. And you see it on TV when you see documentaries about alcoholics, yeah. you know. But my mum and dad, they live in Cyprus. They drink wine every day, every day, every day, every day. And I'm like, that's functioning alcoholic. <laughs> my mum's like, no, it's not. It's called being retired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... When, when somebody ends up in the hospital because they got so drunk they couldn't remember where they were and they banged their head, so all of a sudden they get to that point and they go, oh, hold on a minute here, there's something going wrong, I need to fix this. Yeah. And I can't, I, I've never even thought of anything, Tim, you said what you said, I've never thought of anything apart from that. Yeah. It's, uh, we, we want to push people to the limit because then it becomes so clear, but you don't have to wait this long. We, the thing is that if you teach people to listen and trust themselves, there will be way less problems to solve. You, this is like a whole new, it's almost like a whole new language. Mm -hmm. It's a whole way of being. But we are not taught that. Do you get how profound what you're saying is? Maybe you do. Maybe you've said it and other people have identified that. But for me, that's so profound. Thank you. Thank you for saying this. Because it's like, why, why, why are humanity not thinking like that? I, I've never had a conversation. I've employed thousands of people over the years. I've never had a conversation with anyone that said, maybe try thinking about it this way. Mm. And you're the first person to do that. I, I believe in my message. Uh, that's why I'm so brave to do things that I've never done before. How do we help people to, to, to do that? How, how, what would be the steps that we would need to take 
you know, lots of us are in roles where we manage people, we manage families, you know, we manage groups of people or we have teens. How, how do we identify that and then help, really help? You know, um, so it might sound a little bit unexpected because I've been building up personal growth industry for 20 years. I mean, I am co-founder of MindMan. We've contributed to building up this industry. But I don't believe in fixing other people. I don't think you should fix other people. Oh, man, Vision said that the other day. I think you have to... What you need to work on is your relationship with yourself and your relationship with the world is a reflection of your relationship with yourself. And this is not a new idea. It's just that it's so hard to... Yeah, I'll give you a very simple example. We do that out of best intentions. I have, I have a child. Uh, I have two children. <laughs> so Hayden, when he was about seven years old, we went on a very short trip over the weekend. And when we came back home, uh, he went to sleep and I came just to say goodnight to him and he was crying and I asked why you're crying. He said, oh, I was supposed to do certain homework and I, it's due tomorrow. My, my friends depend on it and, you know, it's cool. And it might seem not like a big deal, but for a seven-year-old child, it's the world, you know, it's the end of the world. And my natural reaction was, but that's my fault. I took you on a trip. That's why you didn't do that. Let me go and send the letter to the teacher and explain that. But then I said, wait, stop. Your child is experiencing life. You're here with that child. Can't you help him to go through that experience rather than fix it for him? And uh, I stopped myself and I sat with my child and we talked about scary situations, how I deal with fear, with this kind of situations, what he was thinking. He, he calmed down. He went to school. The next day he forgot everything. He said, oh, everything is fine. We solved it. What I'm saying that is that very often out of best intentions, we try to fix the people that we love and their problems without realizing that if they're facing problems, they, know, they need certain skills to deal with those problems. And when we solve those problems for them, we deny them the opportunity to get that experience. The best thing I can do for the person that I love is be there with him when he goes through his problems. He gets his lessons. All I can do is support and love him no matter what. That's the analogy of catching a fish, isn't it? You know? teach them how to, to, to yeah to degree but that that is painful because uh, you will ask me so am i supposed to look at the person that i love taking a decision which i know is wrong who are you to judge they are the every person actually knows what's right for them we just don't trust our own inner voice we don't know it and i'm not i'm no one to judge my kids take decisions i disagree with and i will tell them i can express my opinion i can suggest but I can't expect them to take my opinion. What I can, what they can expect from me is that no matter what they choose, even if I disagree, that I will still love them. If you take your philosophy then, so how do leaders help? If you take your philosophy where you, you couldn't, you shouldn't. You do the thing that you have to do and that you love to do and there will be people who will follow you. And if they need, they'll come and ask for help. I've, I've spent yeah, it with the, with the reality of economics and business and, and stuff like that. There was a difference. I, I've spent a lot of time doing charity. I've actually worked for UNHCR, to, for, for Oxfam, for a lot of NGOs. And I understand there is, uh, there is space where you need to help people who can't help themselves, for sure. Uh, but normally that's not our everyday life question. There's a difference between going and helping marginalized societies to yeah. cope with, with, with the situations that they have. And I'm very active socially. So there, there's, there's a balance. Again, there are no absolutes in life, right? Your, your relationship with yourself is, a re I mean, your relationship with the world is a reflection of your relationship with yourself. I'm at peace with the world the way it is. I can tolerate the world's quirkiness and wrongness. It doesn't mean I don't want to change it. 
but I change it from a different place, from the place of where I want to make it better, not because it's bad, but because I think I know how certain things can be better. But I don't think that we should go meddling with other people. You can give your advice, you can give your support. People like come and ask for your help, but you can't depend on them following your advice. Okay, so if people come to me and ask for help, I'm able to give them help. Absolutely, yes. Okay. And you can even give it when they don't ask. I can give but it where... if they refuse, how do you feel then? If they take it and they don't say thank you to you, how do you feel then? But that's like criticism, isn't it? If anyone criticizes you yeah. and you've not asked for that criticism, it's, it's, it, you can be offended. Yes. So it's best not to give people critique unless they've asked for it. I, I absolutely agree non-meddling with the world, but that doesn't mean you don't interact with it. I wouldn't, for the love of life, I wouldn't want to teach to, 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 to convince anyone of anything. But if you ask me my opinion and tell you the way I feel it, Okay, but it, it changes. Let, let, let's go through a real example. Yeah. Here, okay. Maybe it'd be even more contextual. Let's take one of my businesses. I've got a group of people that work with me, men, women from different ages, um, different nationalities as well. And we, uh, in one of those businesses, we provide corporate wellness solutions. We have a, a good high energy team. Okay. Um, people love what they do. They love being part of it. Um, and they love the impact that they're making. But people work at different speeds. Yes. Okay. And, uh, and some people, you know, one of the, one of the guys who's, um, in charge of one of the teams, he, he's got no analytical ability whatsoever, no administrative qualities or operational qualities, but he's just a born leader, you know, and people love him, you know, he's high energy. They follow him. He leaves, a, he leaves chaos behind him in the way. Yeah? yeah. And we have another guy that's far more methodical and organized and operationally structured. Yes. Okay. But people are kind of like, meh about him but the, the the quality of the work on that side is less inspirational but more thorough mm -hmm. i need to make one of them more effective at one part mm -hmm. and the other one more effective at the other part okay as leaders so and i can identify this and when i talk to them they identify it as well do i need them to say to me help me no this is a slightly different relationship because you are you, you're the owner of the company you take the responsibility and this is a this is a mission. It's very different. I have actually had to fire people that I truly love because mission requires that. I've, uh, once I when you know when uh, uh, when the crisis between Russia and Ukraine struck the first time in 2014 when Russia took off uh, Crimea, I had to fire half of my team because we that was my main market. And then when my daughter was born, one of the people that I fired came with the roses, first person to congratulate oh. me because you can do things like that with love. And there is a question there. We sometimes meddle things together. There is mission which needs to be served. And then there are relationships between people which need to be nurtured. And sometimes these, uh, these uh, choices are different. And because we are very complex people, we are multifaceted, our different roles often go into conflict. So you as a boss or you as a mission leader versus you as a, as a friend, even. And, and you know, when the avatars don't see eye to eye, you will prioritize one over the other and then the other one will suffer. If, so you think if you prioritize as a leader, you as a good human being and a friend will be suffering. You will feel guilt. And that's, that's this kind of situation often. In business, as I told you, I'm actually a very chill and less as fair person because I believe that uh, probably Branson said it the best. Uh, we were at dinner with him and actually Vishen asked him that question. How do you, you know, you have all these companies and, and they're so successful. How do you do that? So he said... Uh, that when I'm burning the mission, I find people who share that passion with me 
I let them do it, but you can do it better than I. I let them do it and then and get out of their way. And I think that's, that's my recipe. But again, there are so many different styles of leadership. My style of leadership is I find people who burn with passion and I trust them and I let them be and I let people do what they're best at. I'm not going to force someone. If I see that someone is struggling with that certain aspect, then maybe that's not the best job for you. And in Mindvalley, we've had thousands of people and I've seen it over and over again. Sometimes it's not the problem of the person or the leader. It's the problem of the bad placement then maybe if you're struggling, you have to be let free to do what you're good at. Okay, let's change tact here a little bit before we finish. What are you, what are you most proud of about Mind Valley? I'm just proud of Mind Valley. You know, it's, it's, it's such an interesting, it's my baby. I have four babies now. <laughs> my two children, my brook and Mind Valley. Uh, I've always seen it bigger than it was, always from the very start. And I think even now I see it way bigger than it is. What I'm proud of is that we don't need to, uh, we don't need to bother about, uh, you know, how can I rectify what I'm doing, social, corporate social responsibility, you know, philanthropy. What we do is good, and that's that's so, that's so liberating that you can just do what you love and you know that you're doing good and you don't have to go and 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 do something else to to make yourself feel better. That's what I love the most about mine, really. About being, but I'm saying as a founder, of course, not not as a. Well, you, you have built one hell of an organization and you should be really, really proud of what you've achieved because there are so many people's lives that have been positively impacted by what you do. And there isn't an amount of money in the world that could, could replace the, the, the goods that you do and the benefit that people get from that. I think, yeah, it's, we are just out of balance. You know, we do bad and then we try to compensate that. I think if we all just started doing things without needing to go into that negative balance, it would be so much easier. We wouldn't waste time. You, do you know what? I wasn't expecting to meet you today. Meet your cat. I know. You were like, who are you? I'm like, who are you? But you're, um, I feel inspired after talking to you for the last hour. It's been really fantastic. Christina, thank you so much for your time and coming to join us today on the show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. <laughs>